Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Continuing in our exposition of this letter of Paul to the church at Colossae. And we'll be looking at um, Colossians chapter 3 and verses 16 to 17 this morning. But I'll be reading the, from verse 1 uh, for the sake of context. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. See it at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another and, if one has a complaint against another, Forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to, the, to God the Father through Him. Heavenly Father, as we read this passage and we consider all these commands to um, dwell on things above and not things below, to put to death what is earthly in us, to put off the old self, to put on the new, to put on love and compassion and kindness and all those character qualities of Jesus Christ to honor him in all that we think, say, and do, Lord. These are commands. These are statutes. These are principles which are right and true. Yet so often we fail to follow them. We fail to understand them. So, Lord... Please help us to understand. Please help us to remember. Please help us to apply these truths to our lives and enable us to do so. And as we look at this passage, help us. I pray that the words that I speak would be your words and that your words would go forth in power and precision to impact the hearts and minds of your people for your glory. 
Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, there are many passages in the Bible which speak about holiness and Christian living. Passages which instruct us and compel us to strive forward in our sanctification. And this passage which we just read is probably one of the primary passages in the Bible which explains to us the what, why, and how of sanctification. Sanctification is that process by which Christians, especially and only Christians, those who have repented of their sins and believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ and His sufficient sacrifice for their sins and are born again, Sanctification is that process by which we are being conformed into His image and likeness. It's a lifelong process in which we continually put off sin and put on those righteous characteristics of Jesus Christ. This is what pastors and theologians call progressive sanctification. It's the process by which we who are in Christ are being progressively transformed into His image. Or as many have said before concerning this process that when we come to Christ, we are saved. And during our Christian life, we are being saved and we will be saved. We are saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And what, what, do, what do they mean by that? Because, you know, we believe, we right believe, rightly believe, once saved, always saved. It's true, but when pastors or theologians, they they say that phrase that we are saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved, what they mean by that is that we are saved from the penalty of sin at the time of our conversion or our justification. However, we still sin. We are declared justified before God because of the perfect sacrifice of Christ and paying the penalty for our sins and in His perfect life being credited to our account. As though we were righteous, though we still sin. We are saved. And now, as believers, we are being saved from the power of sin. Throughout our Christian's lives, as we are being progressively sanctified, sins are being put off and righteousness is being put on, and then we will be saved from the presence of sin. When we die in Christ and are glorified in His image. So we are saved from the penalty of sin, we are being saved from the power of remaining sin, and we will be saved from the presence of sin when we are glorified in the sight of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And this process of sanctification, the the primary factor throughout this process, which um, in a sense fuels the process, is worship. It's worship. It's what we desire, what we... um, what our hearts long for, what we do, our affections. And Paul begins this section of his letter in chapter 3 on the positive aspects of sanctification as he starts with our focus in verses 1 to 4, more precisely our worship as a primary means by which we are sanctified. What, what are we dwelling on? What, what is our treasure? What is our hope? What, what is our, our focus? What, what are our minds fixed upon? What do we worship? And then he moves on to the negative aspects of sanctification and explaining those sins which we are to put to death, to put away, and to put off in verses 5 to 9. 
Then he moves back to the positive, Christ-like qualities, which we are to put on, beginning with integrity and then unity. And all of the Christ-like attitudes and actions we are to emulate in verses 12 to 15. This is the, the principle of put off, put on that we see here, but we also see in Ephesians 4 and, and other places in the New Testament. But then Paul ends this section with practical instructions concerning our worship in verses 16 to 17, which we'll be looking at this morning, which interestingly enough, these principles in verses 16 and 17 mirror his philosophy of ministry in Colossians 1.28, in which he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's, that's why he does what he does. That's, in a sense, how he orders his ministry. And in this passage, in verses 16 to 17, the Apostle Paul explains for us, for the Colossians, four elements of true worship, or rather four commands or four instructions concerning how we are to worship Jesus Christ. And first and foremost, we must inform, or you are to inform your worship. Our worship must be informed. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And for some of us, we might be asking the question, what is the word of Christ? Because we understand the word of God. Um, we understand the term, the scriptures, the Bible. But is there something different about the word of Christ? And the answer is no. No, there's... Because Christ is God, and so the Word of Christ is the Word of God. It's the whole counsel of God. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the truth. It's a biblical worldview. It's everything contained in the pages of Scripture. That is the Word of Christ, which is to dwell in us richly. All of the Bible, all of Scripture, particularly the gospel, but not just the gospel. And even as, you know, some have said, and, and I will say sometimes that, you know, the gospel can be as simple as repent from your sins and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And the gospel can be as comprehensive and complex as the whole of Scripture. All of it. There's depth to the gospel. And that is the word of Christ. And as we read this phrase, this first command, this first instruction, there are two implications here in this phrase. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This first command which Paul gives us implies two things. First, it implies our need to be informed. That we need to have this word within us. It needs to not only be within us, but it needs to dwell within us richly. And the reason for that is that we were all created for a purpose. We're all created to worship. We are worshipers. And the question is not, um, not will we worship, but the question is what will we worship? Will we worship our creator as we were designed for? Um, and the answer to that is apart from him, apart from a work of God, apart from regeneration, apart from being born again, no. We worship ourselves. As Romans chapter 1, as, as Paul writes about um, the, the effects of the curse and depravity of man, that 
We exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship the creature rather than the creator. We were created to worship, but you can't worship what you don't know. And, and Jesus alludes to this. Is, in fact, he explicitly states it in John chapter 4. Is he meets the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, and, and he's, in a sense, um, proclaiming the gospel to her. And she's almost throws up this, this smoke screen, this rabbit trail about worship. And he tells her, you, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And Jesus says, you, you worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, is showing the distinction between the Samaritans and the Jews. And um, a little backstory: the Samaritans were, in a sense, a, a half-breed. Um, uh, after the exile, um, some of them were not taken away in exile. Some of them were left. And, and then the Assyrians uh, and, and the Babylonians would transfer people from different realms to um, conquered lands. And so, that in a sense, the Samaritans became sort of a half-breed. And more than that, um, they, they did not accept the whole of the Old Testament. They only accepted the first five books. So there's, there's a lot of things that they did not, um, a lot of revelation they did not have because they did not accept it. And this is why Jesus says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. All the oracles of God, all the revelation of God, all the precepts, the commandments of God is from the Jews, from the prophets. And it's important for us to know this, to inform our worship, to let this word, this revelation, the whole of it, Old Testament, New Testament, to dwell in us richly. All things come from God. All knowledge comes from God. The, the revelation of who He is. You, you cannot, the human mind, the natural mind, cannot reason itself upwards toward God. We cannot understand God on our own. God has to reveal Himself to us. And there's two ways in which He does that. He does that through general revelation, those things in the world that we can see the world, the beauty, the majesty, the order, the form, the function, the precision, the precision that um, there's a sense that the universe itself is intelligible. It can be measured. We see that there's intelligent design in the universe, but that general revelation is not enough um, to, to understand all the intricate, and intricate details and complexities about God or, or concerning salvation. We need special revelation. We need um, these words spoken through God's prophets and his apostles. We need the Spirit. And Paul explains this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 as he, in a sense, is alluding to what happens um, in salvation. It says, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11 to 14 no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. 
Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We need God's revelation, but we need the Spirit of God to work in our hearts and minds to even receive the knowledge of God. That, you know, and many unbelievers, many scholars, many people in false religions or, or Christian cults, they study the Bible, but they don't understand it completely. Because they don't have the Spirit of God. It it takes the Spirit of God to illuminate our minds, to regenerate us, to cause us to be born again so that we can see the Word for what it really is, to understand it, to see ourselves for what we really are as sinners, and to um, cry out to God for salvation, and even for understanding as we seek to understand this Word. And, And... Throughout our whole lives, we will be doing that. As we come to the Scriptures, as we come to the Bible in our personal um, study times, our personal devotional times, we pray. We pray before we read because we need the Spirit to help us. We need the Spirit to illuminate our minds so that we can receive this knowledge, so that this Word can dwell in us richly, so that it can transform us, so that it can inform our worship. That's the first implication of this phrase, our, our need to be informed. And the second implication is how Paul let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, meaning that we need this word of Christ in us. But there's also another implication, how is this to get in us? And for most of us, we know that. We, we know it intuitively that we need to read it, we need to hear it, we need to study it. But I like what Jerry Bridges says in his book, the, the Pursuit of Holiness. He writes this, he says, Usually we think of methods of intake as falling into four categories. Hearing the word taught by our pastors and teachers, reading the Bible ourselves, studying the scriptures intently, and memorizing key passages. All of these methods are needed for a balanced intake of the Word. But we must do more than hear, read, study, or memorize Scripture. We must also meditate on it. To meditate on the Scriptures is to think about them, turning them over in our minds and applying them to our life situations. The objective of our meditation is application, obedience to the Scripture. And that's how the word of Christ is to dwell in us richly. First, through the preaching and teaching of the word of God. And uh, if you've been in, around the church or in church for some time, um, you've heard good preaching, you've heard bad preaching. Um, sometimes that's just because of the experience of the preacher, the, the gifting of the preacher. But even a preacher who's not very eloquent can have good preaching. Because what constitutes good preaching is whether it's true or not. 
That's the main thing. Not, not so much whether the preacher is eloquent, whether he was memorable, though that's, that's a preference. That's a nice to have. You know, we, we need to understand, you know, I wish I was more eloquent and, and I'm striving for that. But however, the most important thing is that we're clear, that we're true, that what we speak of comes from the Bible and, and not just a verse that, that's picked out um, to springboard us into what we really want to talk about. You know, just to say, well, well, I have this idea, I have this talk, I have this motivational speak or this speech or this hobby horse, and what, what verse can I find to support this? And that can be my launch pad. You know, uh, no. Expository preaching is exposing. This is what preachers are commanded to do. This is what every good teacher does. We are to expose the Scriptures to the people of God. The verse, the meaning, the context, the application, the interpretation, the implications, all of it. What, what did the original author intend when he wrote these, these words, these letters? What's the intent? What's the application? That's what is to be preached. That's what is to be taught. That's what's to be received and applied. Second, we, are, uh, we inform our worship. We are to be informed through the study of the Word of God, our own personal Bible study. We, we live in a day and age, and, and, and thankfully, um, you know, even as we're going through adult Sunday school and church history, we, we learn that even in the first and second century, they're, 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 the church still had some scriptures. They didn't have what we have today. But we live in a day and age where we have, we have print Bibles, we have Bibles on our phones, we have um, audio Bibles, we have um, podcasts, we have all sorts of ways in which we can study the Word of God. And it's incumbent upon us to study it, to set aside those times in our days. That's why they call it personal devotions. Because you devote a time of your day to study the Word of God. Now, it is up to you to decide how much time that you would devote in your day, which time, which place. But as a believer, and just as one of God's creation, you should study, you should devote a time in your day to study God's Word. He's given you 24 hours a day. You can divide that up however you think you need to, and we have jobs and families and all sorts of things. But you should devote a good chunk of that to the study of the Word of God. And yes, we can get legalistic. We can beat ourselves up. We can um, become a slave to a Bible reading plan. But you should have a plan. You should have a plan. You should have a plan for how you're going to work through the whole Bible. And, and yes, it, you know, you can't um, legalistically put a time frame on that, saying you must read the whole Bible in a year, though that's a good goal, that's a good plan. But you need to get this word in you. And you need to set aside a time and a place to do that. And, and it's good to have the same time, the same place, because then that helps to build that habit to get this word in you. And there's certain ways 
to do that, uh, repetition, to read the same passage or the same chapter a few times, day after day for a week, or, or um, you know, just to get the breadth of the Bible and to read large portions or to memorize a, a small portion. We are to be informed, first and foremost, through the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, but second, through our own personal study of the Word of God, and, and then third, and sadly, you know, this is often neglected in our day and age, but it's probably the most important, is through the meditation upon the Word of God. That's how this Word is to dwell in us richly, that we are to meditate upon it. Joshua 1.8, this is a verse that, you should have memorized this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate upon it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. This is a command given to Joshua before the, the conquest of the land of Canaan. And it should be applied to all of our lives that we should meditate upon the Word of God, upon this book of the law. He's speaking of the first five books originally, but it can be applied to the whole of Scriptures. We should dwell upon this. We should turn it over in our minds. And too often, you know, in our day and age, uh, we get the wrong connotations of meditation because uh, immediately when we we say the word, um, more often than not, we think of the meditation of the mystics and Eastern religions what the Bible says about meditation. It's different. There's some similarities, but it is different. Donald Whitney, in his book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, which I highly recommend, he writes this. He says this, Meditation is deep thinking on the truths and spiritual realities revealed in Scripture for the purposes of understanding, application, and prayer. Meditation goes beyond hearing, reading, studying, and even memorizing as a means of taking in God's Word. All sounds good and right and true, but how exactly do we do this? And it really starts, in a sense, with memorization. But you can meditate on a verse or a couple verses or a short passage by reading it as you mull over it. And the word, meditate, you probably heard this in different churches, that it's like a cow chewing its cud. That he chews on it, a cow has six stomachs, and he swallows it, and then he regurgitates it, and chews on it again, and breaks it down more, the, the grass and whatever he eats, and, and then it's digested more, so he gets, he's drawing out every bit of nutrient from that grass. From, and, and yes, we aren't cows, but we, we, we don't eat like that, but that's how we are to devour the Word of God. We are to chew on it over and over again. We are to think about it. And how we do that is we read it, we think about grammar. Though most of us don't like to think about grammar, and sometimes it's intuitive, we think, what's the subject of this passage, this verse? Who, who is the author talking to? Um, what action is happening? Where, where are the verbs? Where are the nouns? Um, how do these 
one word impact another? What are the implications of this passage? What, what are the applications that I can apply to my life? Um, what themes does it talk about? Where, where's the theology? And then what, what other passages is this one passage alluding to? Where, what, what other cross-references are? What does it remind me of? Oh, this reminds me of, of, of something in the Gospels or, or something in another New Testament epistle. Or, or this, this is alluding to what happened in the Old Testament. That's how we meditate. We think over and over. It really starts with, um, in a sense, uh, memorization. This goes back to Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And it's a sense in Psalm 1 that those first two verses there's things that the psalmist does not do. There's influences that he, he does not allow in his life. And then his delight is in the Word of God. He delights in it, and because he delights in it, he meditates on it day and night. And the result of that is that he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. If we delight in the law of the Lord, if we delight in the Scriptures, if we meditate upon it day and night, that is the result will be that we will be fruitful, we will be prosperous, not in a worldly sense, but in a spiritual sense, definitely. One commentator writes, he says, dwell means to live in or to be at home and richly may be more fully rendered abundantly or extravagantly rich. The truths of Scripture should permeate every aspect of the believer's life and govern every thought, word, and deed. The word dwells in us when we hear it, handle it, hide it, and hold it fast. To do those things, a Christian must read, study, and live the word. So the first instruction is this in this passage concerning how we are to worship is that you are to inform your worship. And you do that by letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Second, Paul tells us to increase your worship. Increase your worship. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and then teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. It starts with the word of God within us that it, it is richly, abundantly within us, within our hearts and our minds, and then it extends outward. We increase our worship by teaching one another. We teach one another. We can't hold it in. It has to bubble out. It has to go forth. And it's not just our worship. As the Word of Christ dwells within us richly, we just automatically worship. We worship, but then as we teach others, we're increasing the worship of the church because we're, we're raising them up as well. We're teaching them as well. But teaching is important because sanctification begins in the mind. How we are transformed begins with our thoughts. There's this principle, you may have heard it called um, head, heart, hands. Head, heart, hands. It's a principle of of growing, of sanctification, of growing in holiness. That it, it starts with your head, 
the Word of God, the principles, theology, um, implications, application, and then that moves down to your heart, um, uh, engages your heart, which, which um, drives your will and works its out, itself out in your hands, how you live, how you serve, the things you do. This comes from Romans um, chapter 6 and verse 17 and 18. And Paul says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. He's saying, you have become obedient, your hands, what you do, from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. It starts with the teaching in your head, your understanding, your knowledge, moves its way to your heart, engages your will, works itself out in your hands. But teaching is, is, is not only at the heart of sanctification, it's at the heart of the Great Commission. God desires worshipers. Uh, John Piper has famously said, uh, missions exist because worship does not. We are created to worship, but in the fall we worship ourselves, we worship the creation, we worship anything but God. God transforms us. He causes us to be born again so that we will worship Him. And Jesus gives his disciples this commandment at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, a, a, a command that we all know and, and some of us have memorized. To go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is, in a sense, the mission statement of the church. We are to go and make disciples. A disciple is a learner. And we do that by teaching them to observe all that he has commanded us. And there is a sense that the disciples themselves, um, no doubt the word of Christ was dwelling in them richly as they went out to proclaim the gospel, and to teach others to follow. So we, we increase our, our worship by teaching one another. Um, but it, it, it's, it's interesting that the teacher also learns as he's teaching and is sanctified through teaching. Um, this is how worship is, is increased because the, the teacher is continuing to learn, continuing to be sanctified as he teaches, and those he teaches are learning, and, and their, their, their worship is increasing. So you increase your worship through teaching, and second, by admonishing one another. And there's, as Paul writes, teaching and admonishing, there's a sense where there's a positive and a negative. Teaching is the positive, and admonishing is the negative so much. Uh, teaching involves both positive and negative, but it's more along the lines of do this, understand this, learn this. Um, and admonishing is, is more along the lines of don't do this, don't do that, stop doing this. It's a warning and urging and instructing. This term admonishing comes from the underlying Greek verb, nutheteo. It means to counsel about avoidance or cessation of an improper course of conduct, to admonish, warn, instruct. 
This is a term from which the principle of biblical counseling comes from, or what was, some of you may know this, what was originally defined as nuthetic counseling. Back in the, it's probably even goes back as far as the 60s and Jay Adams in the biblical counseling movement. It used to be called nuthetic counseling because it was, it was about admonishing. It was about um, uh, warning, instructing, um, urging to stop a certain pattern or habit or lifestyle of sin and using the Word of God to do that. We are to counsel one another with the Word of God because all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's 2 Timothy 3.16-17, that, that the Word of God and the Word of God alone is sufficient to address all of mankind's problems. You know, secular uh, psychiatry and secular therapists and secular counsel, the best they can do is give us worldly wisdom. And even if it's good counsel, chances are there's principles from the Word of God that somehow got into their counsel. Or just intuitively they know that there's worldly wisdom. But ultimately... It can't solve our problems. Only the Word of God is sufficient to address all of our problems, and therefore we need to admonish one another. We need to counsel one another so that everybody would be fit, would be equipped for every good work, that um, they would be complete so that we could increase our worship in our church, amongst one another, in ourselves. We need to counsel one another with the Word of God, and that that um, requires that we know one another. It requires that we fellowship with one another. And lastly, he, he says that we are to do this in all wisdom. In all wisdom. We don't just pull somebody aside and say, hey, I got something to teach you. <laughs> or, or I've noticed something in you and, and let me admonish you. Um, sometimes that's appropriate. But um, more often than not, we... we we need to um, develop that relationship first and to know somebody so that our counsel is received, so that our teaching is received. Dr. James Roscup, in his exposition on prayer, he, he um, speaks to this. He says, The manner defining how the word has such an impact on lives is in Paul's next words. He says, In wisdom, referring to looking at the life in light of the wise system of values in the message about Christ, teaching and admonishing one another. The two activities are in the present tense, showing a continuing pattern of ministering mutually in the word as believers bring out the things that are copiously dwelling within. Out of the abundance of the hearts, the mouths can speak. Teaching, no doubt, covers a vast range of things in God's will that are informational, instructional, and inspirational. And admonishing while using the same truth emphasizes the urgency of transmitting matters into transforming application. It's, when he says, in all wisdom, that's, that's understanding the person. It's understanding what teaching, what counsel they need in the moment, and, and even how to present that and how to apply it to them, which requires wisdom, and we need wisdom. Even as, you know, there's a, another verse that I, I had um, memorized and been taught um, 
in my biblical counseling classes that kind of emphasizes um, many principles concerning biblical counseling. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. It means they, they all don't need the same thing at the same time. There's people who are idle who need admonishment, and there's people who are faint-hearted who the last thing they need is admonishment. They need encouragement. The same thing with the, the weak. Uh, they need help, and they all need patience. So this is in, in our teaching, in our admonishment, we need wisdom. But that is the way in which our worship and the worship of the church is increased. So we see in this, this verse, in, in verse 16, uh, it, that we are to inform our worship. Your worship is to be informed through the word of Christ. And we increase our worship through teaching and admonishing the, the worship of the church and even our own worship. And then third, we're, we must intonate, intonate your worship. And, and, and that is a real word. I looked it up. I, I was trying to alliterate with my eyes, um, but it is a real word. Intonate your worship. Put it to music. Your worship should bubble out in music, in song, in various songs. He's saying... Uh, as we let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and we're teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. It's interesting. I've read before and heard that the human voice and the vocal cords have such a wide range of musical tone and ability to almost more than than any instrument except for perhaps the the synthesizers and all the electronic equipment we have today but um, our vocal cords the human voice is able to create so many tones and and the reason for that is that we would worship God with our voice and and yes I know that for some of us we cannot make beautiful music (laughs) And, and for, for many of us, we used to, but age has, has gotten the best of us and we can no longer make beautiful music. But nonetheless, we're, we're commanded to sing. We're commanded to make a joyful noise to the Lord. What, whatever is in our hearts, if the Word of God is dwelling within us richly, we can't hold it in. It should come out in teaching and in admonishment. It, it should definitely come out in song. Even if we're humming <laughs> in our heads or being quiet because... We're ashamed of um, our lack of ability, but nonetheless, we need to sing. We need to sing. And, and sometimes we don't feel like reading or doing devotions or praying. And, and the best thing we can do is sing. I, I usually, right next to my Bible, I usually have a hymnal. Because sometimes I need to go to the Word of God and I don't feel like it, and I start with a hymn. And it helps. And usually I end with a hymn. And even if it's a quiet time in the house and, and others are sleeping and I can't sing vocally, it's, I'm humming it, I'm thinking it, I'm reading the hymnal because I have to sing. And, and, and as he says, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, I mean, right away some of us may be thinking, well, um, 
what exactly are these? I, I mean, we know about the Psalms, we know about hymns, we know about spiritual songs, but, you know, is he distinguishing? Is he defining them? And the answer is, is no. He's, he's just saying the whole range, all of it, every type of song that is written to the Lord. And I'd like to, you know, because whatever church we grew up in or, or, or our religious background or our, according to our, our influences and things we read and, and hear, we might have um, different um, opinions concerning what type of music is to be sung or, or even to be played in church, uh, what, what should constitute our worship. And I'd like to, you to turn with me to Psalm 150. Psalm 150, this, the, the, the whole book of Psalms was Israel's songbook. And many of them are prayers, many of them were, were meant to be recited and read, but most of them were written to be sung. They were written to be sung. They were written to be put to music. They were Israel's uh, hymn book. They were Israel's hymnal. And at the end of the Psalter, in Psalm 150, it says this. You know, towards the end of the, the Psalter, um, probably about the last five Psalms, they're all praise. It's all just, it explodes in praise. And the last Psalm, put here for that reason, says this, praise the Lord, praise God in His sanctuary, praise Him in His mighty heavens, praise Him for His mighty deeds, praise Him according to His excellent greatness, praise Him with trumpet sound, praise Him with lute and harp, praise Him with tambourine and dance, praise Him with strings and pipe, praise Him with sounding cymbals, praise Him with loud clashing cymbals, let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. There's, in a sense, nothing that is to be kept out um, if it's done with reverence and awe and respect and as unto the Lord. Everything that has breath is to praise the Lord. Jesus said, you know, as he was coming into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, and, and the Jews and the leaders were telling him to silence his disciples, and he said, if these my disciples do not praise me, the very stones will cry out. And praise me. We're to use everything, we're, everything we can to praise God. He's worthy of our praise. But then at the same time, there needs to be wisdom, there needs to be discernment, there needs to be order and structure. And so we, we, we have to answer the question, you know, what should the form and content of our songs be? And there's three questions we need to ask. First and foremost, is it theologically accurate? Our songs, the lyrics, are they accurate about God? Or, or is there some heresy? Is it, or, or is it so general and vague that any religious group could sing it? There's, there's songs like that. And, and sometimes they are good songs. But, a lot of Christian songs are, are light, they're fluffy, there's no substance to them. It's, it, it's not theologically accurate. It's not fit for a worship service. Second, is it God-centered or man-centered? Is the worship song God-centered or man-centered? Because we're not here to worship ourselves, we're here to worship God. And, and there's an easy way to figure that out. 
What are the subjects, the objects, and the pronouns in the song? It is all about I, me, mine. You know, as George Harrison said, <laughs> I, me, mine, us, we, what you did, it, or is it about you? Is it about him? Is it about God? Or is it about us? Is it man-centered or is it God-centered? Third, is it performed with excellence and reverence? As if we're actually worshiping the creator of the universe. Almighty God. Or is, or is it flippant and frivolous and just like a pop song? There's some silly songs. Does the music complement the lyrics? You can't have these high, lofty lyrics and, and a, a music that it just seems like a teenage pop song. You think of immortal, invisible, God-only wise, in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes. That, that, that hymn requires music that is as lofty as the lyrics themselves. There should be a reverence to our worship songs. And yes, there, there is, a, in a sense, in which there are appropriate songs for us to sing as you know, we're driving around in the car or we're outside or at a Christian camp, which we probably wouldn't use in our worship service because there's a different context. Our worship service should be the most reverent songs. I, re I remember um, it was, uh, I was listening to um, a conference. This is a, a, a Ligonier conference, and, and before the speaker was coming on, I, I wasn't there. I was just listening to the, the, um, the streaming audio, and before the speaker, was, there was this choral arrangement. There wasn't even, there wasn't even lyrics but it was so high and lofty. In a sense, I was convicted. And music tones, there's, tones make a difference. Musical instruments make a difference, depending on which one you use. And, and there's, you know, there's times and places, you know, maybe, maybe you know, around a campfire you can break out a harmonica or a kazoo and, and do something, you know, or, or some sort of instrument, but when for the morning worship service, it should be high, lofty sounds. And I'm not a musician, and many of us here aren't, but you can tell a difference. You know when the music is done with reverence, with um, excellence, and you can tell when it's just thrown together. And there's just a flippancy. Our songs should be theologically accurate. They should be God-centered, and they should be performed with excellence and reverence. But also, you know what? Um, sometimes there's, there's groups, there's artists in the Christian music realm who go astray. Maybe they start off, and they, they have good songs on and then their lives are a mess, their church is a mess, they, they're part of some heretical movement, and we shouldn't sing their songs either. Sometimes they're, they're trying to slip their heresy in. In, in. in our day and age, the top three are, are Bethel, 
you know, Elevation, Hillsong, and there's many, many others. But we need to dis- be discerning in our music and what, what songs we sing and what songs we use for our worship services, that it wouldn't bring any shame upon God or, or us as a church. Our worship should be excellent. It should be God-centered. It should be reverent. Start to um, intonate our worship in various songs, but also in grace, in grace, with, with thankfulness. He says, there, he says here in verse 16 that we're singing to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And, and really um, underlying here, um, thankfulness or thanksgiving, thanks, and grace are, in Greek, they're very closely connected. Um, in, in a sense, um, thankfulness could be also translated good grace. Good grace. And there's, there's many commentators that have um, commented on this, this, uh, this word here. Some have said it should be in grace. And one commentator, he says this. He says, the element in which your singing is to be the grace of the indwelling Holy Spirit. This clause expresses the seat and source of true psalmody, whether in private or public, namely the heart as well as the voice. Singing the psalm of love and praise being in the heart before it finds vent by the lips. And even when it is not actually expressed by the voice, as in closet worship. Saying, you know, when we're in our, our there's this term, the prayer closet or our quiet place. That we don't belt out um, songs, as I was saying. But there isn't a sense that as we're reading the word of God, as we're praying, that songs should be coming out. Even if we can't shout them in that time and place, we should be wanting to sing. It should naturally bubble over. John MacArthur, in his book, Worship, the Ultimate Priority, he writes this. He says, Worship cannot be isolated or relegated to just one place, time, or segment of our lives. Real acts of worship must be the overflow of a worshiping life. As God warms the heart with righteousness and love, the resulting life of praise that boils over is the truest expression of worship. Worship is our innermost being responding with praise for all that God is through our attitudes, actions, thoughts, and words based on the truth of God as He has revealed Himself. We see this in these instructions, these commands, they're... They're all pointing towards worship in different aspects. Starting with the word and then the teaching and the counseling and the admonishment and then the music and the singing. And then he even ends, verse 17, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So Paul's instructions to the Colossians concerning their worship, the primary means by which they are sanctified is to first, inform your worship by letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Second, increase your worship by teaching and admonishing one another. Third, intonate your worship by putting it to song. And fourth, to infuse your worship into everything. Everything that you do. Yeah, we, 
have to ask ourselves because implied in here is the question, how do we do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus? We do it according to his word, according to his instructions. He says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We infuse our worship in word, in our words. Whatever we speak, whatever comes out of our mouths should be honorable and pleasing to Jesus Christ. It should be, um, should be in a sense, uh, giving him praise. It should, we, we should be talking about him all the time. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. That's a verse that we should all memorize. And what's so beautiful about that verse is, um, it, in a sense, uh, it doesn't explicitly define the speech, but it uses almost... Um, Umbrella terms, no corrupting talk. It doesn't say don't swear, but swearing is included in corrupting talk. It's like anything that would tear somebody else down, whether it's a good word or not, you can use good words to corrupt, to tear other people down. But only such as is good for building up. That we are to speak those words which edify, which encourage, which build one another up. And then he says, as fits the occasion. Because, you're, you know, there's certain occasions that, you know, um, like, you know, a cheerful, cheerful um, trying to cheer somebody up who is grieving the loss or of somebody who just experienced a traumatic event. That, that doesn't fit the occasion. That's probably the time to weep with them, to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. And finally, that may give grace to those who hear. We are, we are to speak in such a way that we consider others more significant than ourselves. That was a Christ-like quality in, in Philippians chapter 2. That whatever we do in word or deed is done in his name. Indeed. Indeed. All our actions. Second, uh, James talks about this. It, it, you know, in, in his epistle in, in the beginning of James in, in chapter 1, he, he says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. It starts with the word indwelling in us and the words we speak, but we are to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. In his doing. We are to apply the word of God, the word of Christ, to our lives and all our actions. And some of these commands throughout Scripture, throughout the Gospels, throughout the New Testament epistles, they're all about our actions, our interactions with one another, what we are to do, what... We are commanded to do clear commands about how we behave. But sometimes it's, it's not so clear. We are to think what would, in a sense, what would Jesus do? To think of others as more significant than ourselves. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
you know, in his name? What would he do? What would honor him? And then finally, in thanksgiving. In thanksgiving. Giving thanks always to God the Father through him with a, a heart of contentment, with a heart of thanks for every circumstance, for every providential occurrence, to be content. There's a parallel passage to this passage right here. You know, the, the, the letter to the Colossians and the letter to the Ephesians are, are very similar in their structure and their content, and, and even the letter to the Philippians. Uh, but there's a parallel passage to this passage in Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, 18 to 20. Paul talks about, in a sense, giving almost as similar instructions as he does in in Colossians 3, 16 and 17. He says in Ephesians 5, 18 and 20, 18 to 20, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He begins that, that, that passage, that verse in Ephesians 5.18 by saying, do not get drunk with wine. And he, he was not just talking about the sin of drunkenness. There's something deeper here. Because in the Greco-Roman world, and in particularly in Ephesus, uh, drinking, drunkenness was a part of their worship. It was a part, and not just uh, alcohol, but other drugs. They're, they're getting intoxicated. They were being filled with wine. There, there's a, and he contrasts that. He says, don't be filled with wine. Don't be filled with alcohol or drugs as part of your worship. You are to be filled with the Spirit. You are to be controlled by the Spirit, not by um, other substances. You are to be controlled by the Spirit. And as you're controlled by the Spirit, as you're filled with the Spirit, in a sense, the Word of God, the Word of Christ dwelling in you richly, then you address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You sing, you make melody to the Lord, you give thanks, you do everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything. Everything. We, we are created as worshipers. And we are redeemed for worship. Everything we do should be to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, to worship God the Father, to worship the Holy Spirit, to worship the triune God for who he is and what he has done and what he has said. So Paul can say you know, to the Corinthians, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This is essentially what Paul is talking about as he caps off this, sec- this section in his letter He culminates this section in his letter with worship. This this section about sanctification with worship. We are sanctified as we worship, as we honor God, as we proclaim God, as we proclaim Christ. This is how we are to live. We are to inform our worship through the word of Christ. We are to increase our worship by teaching and admonishing one another. We, we, We are to intonate our worship through singing, through song, and we are to infuse our worship into everything we do. Word, deed, everything. But yet there's probably some of you here, most of, all, most of us don't worship as we should. I, I dare say all of us don't worship as we should. But some of you don't worship as all, at all. You don't, you don't care about the glory of God, and that's because God has not done a work in your life. 
God has not saved you. You you have not seen the glory of God. And the call to you is to repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, to seek him while he may be found, to call upon him while he he is near, because you were created for the express purpose of being a worshiper. And yet, as Romans 1 says, we exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And if we continue in that state, we will be damned forever. We need to be born again so that we will worship God in spirit and truth because that is what he is seeking. Heavenly Father, these are good words. These are hard words. But these are clear words. That we were created to worship. That we are um, called to worship you. And in our fallen state, we don't worship you. We need regeneration. We need to be born again. We need the Holy Spirit to change us so that we would worship you. And yet, for those of us that are changed, we still fail to worship you. And perhaps that's why we still struggle with certain besetting sins. Because we're doing things, we're living for ourselves and not for you. So Lord, help us to apply truths to our lives. We, we pray that your word would dwell in us richly, that we would meditate upon it at night, that we would treasure it, that we would delight in your law. Give us these desires and help us. Help us to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.